It's been a great morning already to be in the house of the Lord. Nothing quite like the people of God coming into the house of God to praise God and to worship Him. And now we come to a point where we hope to um, faithfully hear a word from our Lord. Uh, I know that we have been in this series, the seven, the messages to the seven churches of the book of Revelation. Today we are looking at Smyrna. We are looking at the idea of them being faithful unto death. And that's a, that's a hard, hard title. When I put that title in there, I thought, man, that's, people may not be anxious to hear this because we're talking about being faithful, even if it's unto death. But last week, we got a good start in the seven churches. We talked about Ephesus. We know that Ephesus was commended by our Lord for the fact that they held to true doctrine. They held very strongly to true doctrine. They were not going to be taught and, and allow false teachers to lead them astray. But Jesus said he did have one thing against them. They had abandoned their first love. They had abandoned their true love for God, which was demonstrated in the way that they loved others. You've heard me say it a thousand times. You'll probably hear me say it another thousand times over the years. If you are not loving others, then you are not truly loving God. You cannot do one without the other. Because he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And his commandments say to love one another. This week, we are picking up with the second church listed in the second chapter of Revelation, the church of Smyrna. Smyrna is still a city today. It's called something different. Smyrna is modern day Izmir, found in Turkey. It's about 35 or 40 miles north of where Ephesus would have been. So the messenger from John who had received his letter has landed and he's first in Ephesus and now he's making his trek on a natural path around and he goes first to Smyrna after he leaves Ephesus. Smyrna is a very loyal city to the city or to, to Rome. They are not quite as large as Ephesus, but they are pretty close. Ephesus had probably 250,000 in population, where Smyrna had about 200,000. They, they, Smyrna, Ephesus, and Pergamum, that's a hard one, Pergamum, they rivaled one another for the title of who would be considered first of Asia. It was known as a birthplace for the author Homer. It was a wealthy city. It focused and flourished in the area of learning, especially in science and medicine. They were so loyal to Rome that they had earned the privilege of being a free city. They were self-governing. They were able to also uh, be the city that beat out 11 other cities to create a, or build a temple to the, the Roman emperor Tiberius. It had, Smyrna had beautiful paved streets. One, one was uh, known as the Golden Street. It went right down the middle of the city. On one end, they, you found a temple to Cybele, and on the other end, a temple to Zeus, and dotted in between were temples to Apollo, Asclepius, and Aphrodite. They were very, very pagan would be a good word for it. They, they, they had a pantheon of, of gods that they 
would worship. Just want to remind you, at the time that John is writing the letter of Revelation, Domitian is the emperor of Rome. He has put into place what we would call mandatory Caesar worship. Every year, every citizen had to burn incense on the altar to the godhead of Caesar. What's important to note is earlier in the, in the middle of the first century, Rome had exempted the Jews from Caesar worship. They recognized that the Jews were monotheistic. They only worshiped one God. So it would be outside their culture to worship anyone other than Yahweh. So Rome, being somewhat benevolent, let the Jews be exempt to Caesar worship. Early on, Christians were what you might say grandfathered in on that. There was an understanding that, that Christianity had, had been a sect or a division of what would be considered Judaism. So Rome at first had given Christians an exemption as well. But early in the, or late in the first century, due to uh, Jews being disgruntled with Christians, along with a misunderstanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, where it looked like from the outside looking in, looked like Christians served three gods, which would have made them polytheistic to Rome's point of view, Christians were now being told that they had to worship Caesar. We know that that's not gonna happen, but that's, that's where they find themselves. Jews, or so-called Jews, would be people who might rat out Christians for being in the city of Smyrna who were not willing to, to uh, worship, on, worship Caesar. So that's the background, that's the setting where we find ourselves as we begin reading in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 8 through 11 as we look at this message to the church at Smyrna. Jesus says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He said, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Father, give us grace this morning to hear and to understand your word. In your name we pray, amen. So our messenger, though John is writing, we know that the message is coming from Jesus himself, our Redeemer, our Lord. He is the one who is worthy to be praised, and he is the one who is giving this message to the church at Smyrna, just like he gave a message to the church in Ephesus. Now, it's interesting that just as you read the, through the Old Testament, we find different names of God in the Old Testament. He'll be called Jehovah Jireh. He'll be called Jehovah, Jehovah Nisi. He'll be called these different names that characterize him, that help 
people understand that he is going to help them through whatever it is they're dealing with. Y'all are familiar with that. Well, in this instance, Jesus is doing the same thing. And right off the bat, we find out that he is identifying himself as the Christ, our eternal and resurrected Lord. Look at what he says in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Smyrna is going through some stuff. Life is hard. They are being persecuted. They are being discriminated against. And he wants to make sure they understand who he is to them to help them through this. Smyrna was a church that especially needed encouragement. It was persecuted. It was suffering. And things were going to get worse. Therefore, John takes them back to the vision of the glorified Christ that we read in chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. Here's what Jesus said then, or John wrote there. When I saw him, John said, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. So Jesus is reminding the church of Smyrna right from the start that he is divine. He is the son of God. He is a member of the Trinity, and as the first and the last, he has shown himself to be eternal. He is infinite. He reigns as our eternal Lord over all of history. And there is nothing that the Christians in Smyrna, it's nothing they have faced, nothing they are facing at that time, and there is nothing they will face that he is not aware of. It is his story that is playing out. It is his history that we are going to find out later in chapter 5 when the, when the scroll is opened. It is his history that is being played out. He is the one who is worthy to open the scroll. He is the one who is worthy to have life play out as God has it designed to play. They are not on their own. The Lord to whom they are allegiant is with them. And as the eternal Lord, he is sovereign. He is in control. And the Christians at Smyrna were going through enough at that time. They needed to be reminded. Perhaps you are going through some things in your life right now. Life might feel out of control. You don't know how you're going to handle this situation. We as human beings, one of the hardest things we deal with is the fact that we don't have control over a situation. That there is something going on that we can't see what's coming around that corner. We can't see how this is going to play out. But God does. Nothing catches him by surprise. In fact, because he is eternal and because he is outside of time, he already is present in our future. Let that sink in for a minute. He is already there. Our future is playing out exactly how he would have it play out. And I can't give you all the answers to that. The, the understanding of how God is completely in control of this universe, yet we have free will to make our own decisions. I can't lay that out for you in a neat little package with a bow so that we can understand that. But I can actually tell you the fact I can't explain it gives me peace. Because that means he is bigger than me. 
My finite mind, no matter how sharp I think it is, my finite mind cannot figure out how the sovereignty of God in this world works with my free will. How did I get here? Well, God got me here. I'm not a marionette. I'm not a puppet on a string. I'm making my decisions. Yet he has worked it all out. And he has worked out where you are in your life. And he has worked out how you will get through what you are going through. He's not only the eternal Lord. He is also the resurrected Lord who died and came to life. He is the living one who died but is alive forevermore. We do not serve a dead savior. We do not serve a false god who is an idol made of some wood or some precious metal. We are not worshiping some abstract thought being that is just philosophically out there somewhere that is a force in the world like the Gnostics of the first century believed. We are worshiping and following and, and giving praise to a living savior who came to this earth clothed in the flesh of man, who lived a perfect life, who died on a cross for our sins and for the sins of the world. And all we have to do is accept that gift, accept that sacrifice, ask for him to forgive us and surrender our life to follow him. And he becomes our Lord and our savior because we are following him with everything we've got. But he is alive. Scripture tells us he ascended back into heaven. He didn't die again. He is alive at the Father's right hand. And we are serving a resurrected eternal God who is alive forevermore in our lives and beyond. We will see in a little bit how important it is that Jesus characterizes himself like this for these Christians in Smyrna. He has reminded them, just as he reminded John in chapter 1, verse 17, that they have nothing to fear, not even death, because he has overcome death. The message of Smyrna is coming from the Christ, the eternal and the resurrected Lord. And they need this aspect of who Jesus is, because the church at Smyrna is afflicted. It is afflicted. Look at verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus is saying, I see you. I know your tribulation. He's not from afar off. Remember in chapter one, he is walking among the golden lampstands. He sees what they're dealing with. He sees what the struggle is. He understands their tribulation, which means pressure and trouble. It's pressure and trouble, especially in the physical, the mental, the social, or the economic spheres of life. We can be facing tribulation in many, many different ways. Some today are facing tribulation in their physical bodies. They feel pressure. They're feeling troubled in their bodies. Sometimes our mental life is giving us issues. Sometimes we have social problems with our friends and our family because of the fact that we follow Jesus. And sometimes, even in the life of these Christians in Smyrna, it faces our economic world as well. You see, it, he said, I see your poverty. I know your poverty. That's not spiritual poverty. The spiritual aspect comes in in the parentheses there where he says, but you are rich. You are spiritually rich, but socially and economically in this wealthy city, the Christians are dealing with poverty. 
because they won't be a part of the trade guilds. They won't be a part of those who are worshiping Caesar. They won't be a part of those who are, are do, taking part to be good Roman citizens. And the Roman citizens notice and they won't now, they won't go to their businesses. They, they won't go and, and be someone who helps them with their business. The, the Jews themselves are turning them in for not being good Roman citizens. And it has affected their economics. They are poor. And these Jews, these so-called Jews, we're going to talk about them just a little bit more in a minute. But they are slandering these Christians. Slander then is just like slander today. It's abusive words spoken falsely against someone. It's, it's done with the intent of damaging their reputation. Have you ever been slandered? You ever had someone say something intentionally wrong about you to try to ruin your reputation in whatever particular circle? I know my life, it was, um, that was prevalent in my younger years. I can thankfully say it's not as much now, but teenagers, I know where you are. I know it happens a lot in middle school and high school. I know there was one time because of slander that there was going to be a big fight at our middle school and I went to see what it was all about and turned to find out I was going to be the one in the fight. I didn't know. They set me up. I was a little seventh grader about to get whipped by two football teams. If it wasn't for a freshman who pulled me out and basically, <laughs> bless him, because he put me behind him and said, no, you're not going to get to him today. Thank you. But slander is real. Sticks and stones, they hurt. But slanderous words hurt even more. And he says that these folks are not real Jews. They are from the synagogue of Satan. Now, what could that possibly mean? I want to make sure we're clear that even though over the generations, this particular verse has been used in anti-Semitic circles, that is not what John is saying. He is not pulling out all Jews and categorizing them in one role as a synagogue of Satan. He is speaking of those who claim to be a good Jew, but they're not the actual children of God. They're not called out by God because of the way they are acting and the way they're living their life. You see, the New Testament defines God's people in relation to Jesus, not their genealogy. In chapter 8 of John, in his gospel, Jesus is speaking to Jews who are trying to defend themselves because of their heritage, because that they are heirs to Abraham. And look what he says in verse 42 of John chapter 8. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. You understand that you are a child of one or the other. 
You are either a child of God or you are a child of Satan. It is binary. Those are the only two options. You are a child of Satan until you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and ask him to forgive you of your sin. And the Jews, though they were chosen, they still had to be faithful to God. And so for them, simply being of Jewish heritage did not make them people of God any more than simply being a member of a Baptist church makes us people of God. Or Church of Christ, or Methodist, or Presbyterian, and you can go on down the line. Being a member of a church, having your name on our church roll, does not guarantee your name on the Lamb's Book of Life. You see, we live in a culture of the South that going to church is just what you do. You ask some people for their testimony and they will say, well, I've been a Christian all my life. And what they mean by that is that they have been brought to church all their life. That their grandmother or their mother or their parents, their grandparents, whomever, from the time they were born, they don't remember a time that they were not being brought to church. And they continue on in that tradition as they get older because on Sunday, that's just what you do. You just go to church when you live in the South. But they have never been a time in their life that they have surrendered their life to following Jesus Christ. They know all the facts about him. They can sit and win all the Bible trivia. They can do all of these things because they have a head knowledge of who Jesus is. They know the facts about him, but they do not know him as their Lord and Savior. They have never asked him to actually forgive them of their sins, and they have never surrendered their life to follow Jesus Christ, to do life his way. There are people... I heard a pastor very recently say, you're going to be surprised that there are going to be a lot of, a lot of other denominations other than Baptist in heaven. And yes, there will be. But we may be surprised when we get there and realize that there are people sitting in our pews every Sunday morning who aren't there. Because they thought simply coming to a Baptist church or a church of Christ, a Christian church, a Presbyterian church, they thought that was enough. And they've never surrendered their life to follow Jesus. In the case of Smyrna, these Jewish people were persecuting the people of God. And Jesus encourages the Christians by telling them that they are not of God. They are of Satan. And we carry on in verse 10. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Well, that's encouraging. The one who knows everything the one who is already in our future is encouraging them and telling them, oh, don't fear about the suffering that's still to come. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He's reminding them, just as he reminded John, you have no reason to fear. He is the first. He is the last. He is the eternal resurrected Lord. He has already taken care of death. It's nothing to fear. But he says, but notice this context. He isn't saying they don't have to fear because things are going to improve. That's where most of us want to live. 
We want to live with the idea that everything is good and rosy when you follow Jesus, that he's going to pull us out of all of our trouble, that he is going to move in whatever is the issue, the tribulation, the trial, the storm, whatever is happening in our lives. We want to think that Jesus is just going to take that away. I've been there too. I know you have. But Scripture does not teach us that God removes us from our problems. It doesn't even teach us that God removes the problems. What it teaches us is we don't have to fear because he's walking through it with us. The more suffering is coming. They said 10 days you will be thrown into prison. That 10 days may or may not be literal. I believe what's more important here is it is a definitive amount of time. God knows exactly how long it will be and that it will be brief. There will be a short time there. 10 days is considered a short period of time. But notice the encouragement for them is to remain faithful even unto death. So Jesus is telling them, fear not. You are about to be tested even further. Some of you are going to be put in prison. And though your time in prison may be brief, it may not end with you being released. Instead, it may, be end, it may end with you being martyred for my name's sake. So remain faithful. I told you that the city of Smyrna still exists today under a different name. It's called Izmir. There is still Christian persecution happening. There are still deaths for Christianity happening in Izmir. One of the most famous martyrs in our Christian faith was John's disciple Polycarp. Polycarp was martyred in his old age, burned at the stake alive in Smyrna. When Jesus said to them, more suffering is coming, they could put, take that to the bank. It was coming. It is still here. And looking back to verse 8, they don't need to fear this coming persecution that may lead to death. Because Jesus has conquered death because he is the resurrected Lord. Friends, this is a very somber challenge. Jesus doesn't directly point out the fact of something to commend them for like he did in Ephesus. He doesn't, and he doesn't have any admonition for them, telling them they've done things wrong. What he's saying is, I see who you are. I see what you're facing. And though more of suffering is coming, I'm going to be with you. The resurrected Lord tells them to remain faithful. And that those who do remain faithful are conquerors and they will be crowned. The conquerors will be crowned. Look at verse 10. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Persevering in the face of death makes, does not make one faithful. Let me say that again. Persevering in the face of death does not make one faithful. Rather, one perseveres in the face of death because one is already faithful. You understand the difference? 
God has tested us. God has prepared us. God has strengthened us through our trials. And now when much greater trials come, we have become more mature in our faith. We are a more mature believer, not because of, of age, not because of length of following Jesus, not because of any academic knowledge. We are faithful because we have learned through our trials and our tribulations, and it has strengthened us and prepared us for what is coming next. We all know the analogy. You can't wait until you are faced with tribulation to get ready for tribulation. You have to be ready when it shows up. Do you remember the parable of the talents? Remember, the master was going on a journey and he gave three servants money. He gave one servant five talents. He gave another servant two talents. And he gave the third servant one talent. And they were supposed to use those talents to the best of their ability to further the kingdom of the master, to further his influence, to further his work. The servants with the five and the two talents, they both doubled their investment. They returned 10 and 4, respectively. They brought that back to their master. And listen to what he said. They were both told that they were faithful in a little, so they would be given much. And they were invited to enter into the joy of their master. The servant who had one talent, Scripture tells us that he dug a hole. He buried it. He hid it. So when his master came back, he was able to dig up that one talent and give it back to him. He had done nothing in the absence of the master to, to create any more influence for his kingdom. He was called wicked. He was called slothful. And his talent was taken away and given to the servant who, who had ten talents. And he was cast into outer darkness. And I know you're probably saying, Kenan, what in the world are you talking about? That's a very positive kind of story, talking about using our talents, our giftings, what we have been given as resources, using them for the sake of the kingdom. But what struck me this week while I studied, this, this passage, this parable came to my mind because of that one word, faithful. It's the same word in both stories. It's the Greek word pistos, meaning faithful. It's characterized by steadfast allegiance and affection. And I think the same principle applies here. When we remain faithful in small trials, we will be given the strength to remain faithful in harder trials. The eternal and resurrected Lord says to remain faithful in what is possibly the hardest trial we will ever face on this side of eternity. We are told to remain faithful even unto death, particularly if we are doing it for, the, for his name's sake. And if we are followers of Jesus Christ, doing something for his name's sake isn't something that we pick up and put on every other day or on Sundays or Wednesday nights. Everything we do is supposed to be for the glory of God. So everything we do, the person we are, the life we live is supposed to be done for his name's sake. So all of us, when we are facing our death here on, on earth, are going to be doing it for his name's sake. 
We can remain faithful even under death because we know the persecution. We know the tribulation. We know the suffering is temporary. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 10 says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We, like the Christians in Smyrna, will receive the crown of life. It's eternal. Just as the church in Ephesus was able to eat from the tree of life, representing eternality of their final destination, now we are receiving this idea of receiving a crown. This isn't a royal crown like a king would wear. This is a crown of victory. Like a wreath that is placed around the head of someone who has won a race in the Olympics. The Smyrnans would have understood that analogy. They would have got the illustration because they participated in the Olympics way back then. The symbolism isn't lost on them. The crown of life, eternal life, is given to the one who is victorious, given to the one who remains faithful. And we remain faithful, staying, it's, it's so confusing sometimes. Because it almost sounds like we're trying to earn something. Because we're saying, stay faithful and you'll receive the crown of life. But you can only stay faithful if you have the Holy Spirit's power living within, within you. So it's still all about him. He says in verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers. Huh. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? Revelation 14, verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. The second death is the eternal separation from God the Father in a lake of fire. Your physical death is trivial compared to this one because this one never ends. The torment never ends. The tribulation is permanent. It's not for a short period of time. It's not for a 10-day stretch, as mentioned earlier. It is for eternity. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have never surrendered your life to him, if you have only been a person who has come to church all your life, but have never decided that make him Lord, to make him boss of your life, if you have never decided to follow him with every part of you, this is your future. I'm not trying to scare you. I don't want you to make an emotional decision today. I want you to know the truth, that there's only two options. Either you are a follower of Jesus, which we'll get to their results here in just a moment, 
or you're a fo- not a follower of Jesus, and that is what awaits you. But for the conquerors, chapter 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Life is hard. We go through tribulation and it comes and goes. Standing for Jesus can cost us everything, even our very lives. We are promised that the worst thing you can do is kill the body. That's it. You're like, well, well, yeah, that's pretty big. That's the worst thing. Because second death has no power over us. If the worst you can do to me is end my physical life here on this earth, I'm going to tell you to bring it on. Because I am promised so much more in eternity than I could ever be given here on this earth. And because we belong to the one who is the first and the last, and we will not be hurt by the second death, then we can stand faithfully confidently knowing that what we are called to do, that whatever we are facing today is not worth anything of this world. It is worth everything in the next. So I have to ask the question as the band gets ready to come, how much is Jesus really worth to us? The Christians at Smyrna were being encouraged that the persecution they were facing was not going to get better. It was only going to get worse. More suffering was coming. They were encouraged to remain faithful, to stay steadfast, to remain a people who had allegiance to and adoration of the Father. What kind of trial would cause you to turn your back on Jesus? What kind of trial and tribulation would lead you down a path to disown him? What is your limit? Are you able to be faithful no matter what? You may be thinking back over your week. There There may have been times this week that you weren't faithful because for whatever reason, whatever excuse, are you faithful in sharing your faith? I mentioned in the first service, John prays every week about the thousands of people moving here to Athens and Limestone County. He prays every week about the fact that there are more people not in church today here in this county than there are people in church. If we really believe what we say we believe, if Revelation 14 and that description of the second death is really in our friends and loved ones' future, what does that say about us if we're not sharing our faith? The number of Christians, the number of Jesus followers who have lived their entire faith-filled life and have never ever shared their faith with someone else, has never had an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, to see someone else come to faith. The number of people, that, is, that percentage is staggering. 
We are beyond the come and see type of model. 25, 35 years ago, people moved into a new town. It was especially in the South. It's just what you did. You went to church. You went to see what was going on. That's not happening today. You say, Kenan, how do you know I'm not sharing my faith? Because we have empty pews that I'm looking at. I know we're not sharing our faith like we're supposed to. Because we don't have people in the baptismal waters every week. I know we're not sharing our faith like we're supposed to because we don't have tear-stained steps where people are crying over the lost in their families. Do we really believe Revelation 14? Do you really believe that if they don't know Jesus, they will split hell wide open and they will burn in eternity torment? Do you really believe it? Then why aren't we doing anything about it? Right now, we are living in a country where we don't understand persecution. We're spoiled. We live more by the constitutional rights we're given than we are living by the book. We are more worried about whether or not my amendments have, my rights by the amendments have been broken in my life more so than we are about whether or not I'm living my life the way Jesus would have me live it. Now, don't get me wrong, I love this country and I love, our, I love our nation. I'm proud to be an American, but I am first and foremost a citizen of heaven. And there is coming a day that that persecution is coming to our shores. And we have to determine now if we're going to be ready to face it. Friends, you may not be aware that there are 100 to 150,000 Christians killed because of their faith every year. It's not happening in, the Amer- in America, and we've got our head in the sand. So my prayer for us this morning is that we will be people of the book, that we will be people who are passionate about what we say we believe, and that we will be faithful even if it costs us our businesses, even if it costs us our home, even if it costs me my family and friends because I've turned my back. Luke identified with Jesus today, and in many places in this world, that would have got him rejected by his family. In many places in this world, just speaking the name of Jesus and that you're a follower can get you killed. And we say we believe Revelation 14 is real. But we're not faithful in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. 